Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Malvin. For those who don't know me, I'm a birth worker, a life coach, hypnotist, and a former liberal feminist turned radical truth teller. On this podcast, I expose the forces at play attempting to control our minds and bodies, such as transgender ideology, pornography, prostitution, and so much more. Together, we'll untangle patriarchal lies as you listen to jaw-dropping interviews with women from around the world. Warning, while listening to this podcast, you might find yourself triggered or perhaps notice where you've been biting your tongue on the issues that matter most to you. In my coaching and hypnosis, I help women and men stop getting triggered by every single thing, cultivate resilience, stop unwanted behaviors, and increase self-confidence. You can book your first session at whosebodyisit.com, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. And I just want to say that it's because of your endless support that I'm able to interview amazing women, get their stories out, and produce regular episodes for you. So with that being said, please like, comment, and subscribe to my channel on YouTube. And if you're listening in, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And also consider making a financial contribution via the link in my show notes. You can also visit my activist sticker shop. My pro-woman stickers have the power to intercept transhumanist programming. So take a photo of your stickers out in the wild and tag me on Instagram at whose body is it? So if we're connected on Instagram, you may have seen me hinting at a couple masterclasses I've been working on behind the scenes with some really incredible collaborators. Um, I am going to be releasing more details on the upcoming masterclasses, particularly the one coming up in May. I'm going to be releasing more details via my newsletter on Monday. So if you are not already subscribed to my newsletter, you can do that via whosebodyisit.com. Um, I don't spam you. Pretty much you're signing up to get access to early bird pricing, to get notified when I have new podcast episodes out, and then other free resources that I update periodically. So make sure to sign up for my newsletter. That is where I'm going to be releasing more details about the upcoming masterclasses. And also, you will only be able to get access to early bird pricing if you are on my newsletter. I will not be releasing that uh, to anyone else. You have to be a newsletter subscriber to get that special deal. So stay tuned and let's get into this week's story. Amanda Savage Brown's doctors told her that her silicone breast implants were a completely safe permanent solution to change her silhouette after breastfeeding. She looked down and saw her ski slope breasts and when she compared herself to other women, she felt she came up short. The implants were cold, stiff, and eventually began leaking toxins inside her body. When her symptoms got worse, she discovered that her doctors did not have the data to back up claims that her breast implants were perfectly safe or that her mysterious autoimmune reactions were coincidental. 
Amanda is now a psychotherapist and author of Busting Free, a comprehensive guide to physical and psychological well-being for women at any stage of the breast explant process. She works with women on healing the beliefs that lead us to question our value, allowing us to be manipulated by predatory marketing. Breasts are not just about beauty and self-esteem. They stand for our self-conception as women and as mothers. That's also why breast removal is pushed so hard on women who disidentify with their female bodies. We explore how cosmetic surgery, an industry dominated by male surgeons, works to support the sexualization and objectification of women. We also dive deep into the appetitive effect and the illusion of informed consent. Amanda also exposes the conveyor belt from breast cancer to breast reconstruction and the epidemic of women who experience breast implant illness after being told that breast cancer was the worst fate they could face. Even if you've never had breast implants, you'll be able to relate to the discussion of the desire to belong based on the shape and size of our bodies. We're going to be getting through a lot, and I'm just so excited to have you, Amanda, here to take us through the history of, of all of this, how we got here, and you know the, the, the conveyor belt um, that women are on presently to, yeah. to get these implants. So yeah. um, would you first start by, by telling us a little bit about how you came to be talking about this issue? Sure. And, and thank you, Isabella, for having me. I'm excited to be here and share about this. Because I think like you were just wisely pointing out that this is a really big issue. And while some people end up putting breast implants in, others don't. But most of us at least know someone or love someone who's somewhere on a breast implant or explant journey, or our life might come to a crossroads where we need to make that decision for ourselves. And then you realize just how intense the social programming is of women around breasts and belonging. So I started talking about this, which was an interesting transition for me as a therapist. You know, we're kind of trained to be a little bit more private and quiet. And so it had to be something pretty important for me to step forward and get more of a public facing aspect to my work. I had breast implants put in in 2006 after I had my last child and I nursed and my mind just wouldn't let go that my post-nursing breast aesthetics were in some way threatening to me, even though no one was messaging that to me, it was just a completely internalized reaction that I was having as I was judging myself against this deeply ingrained social programming that I just wasn't aware. It, it's placed in all of our minds without our awareness, choice, or consent. And so I got breast implants in 2006 and I lived with them for 12 and a half years. I had a lot of local problems with them. What I mean is things right around the implants. So they were cold. They, uh, I got capsular contracture, which is a very common thing where they just don't move. They become very stiff. They're just hard, unnatural looking. And I had a lot of other things going on 
that I never attributed to my breast implants. And, you know, we'll probably talk more about systemic effects from breast implants. And I didn't realize until after I explanted just how much my body was battling by having these foreign, unnatural, chemical-filled things placed right there, you know, next to your heart and your lungs. So I ultimately decided to remove mine as the result of a rupture, a post-mammogram rupture. And I moved through the explant journey. And that's when I was being gaslit about breast implant illness, that systemic health effects from breast implants. I didn't even know it was a thing, but I was being gaslit about it. So as a former public health scientist and as a psychotherapist, I became very concerned about what was happening to women who were seeking care for that particular experience for breast implant illness. So I, true to my nature, started looking into it. And that's when I realized that there was just this whole world of considerable numbers of women struggling with these journeys and systemic effects from breast implants and breast implant removal. And I noticed there was a lot of support for the surgical considerations and that there was nothing really developed from professionals to support women with the psychic aspect, the mental and emotional, and then even the social aspect you know, breasts are these icons of femininity and so much so they matter so much to us that we live in societies that offer us these temporary and problem prone devices to quote, fix our breasts. And then when it comes time to remove those devices, or if those devices aren't working out for us, we're just supposed to white knuckle through that silhouette altering surgery, you know, and no one signs up for breast implants, hoping to be disappointed, least of which breast cancer survivors. Right. And so no one's immune from this experience. Once you have breast implants put in, they, you inevitably must choose to replace or remove them. And we'll probably talk a lot more about, you know, the current recommendations around them, but that's how I started talking about this was when I saw that gap, in the psychosocial care for women on these journeys, I knew that I could translate the evidence-based approaches that I use in my private practice to specifically fill those gaps and to help women. I, I have a mission to liberate women from, you know, our socially inherited beliefs about our breasts, our body and our belonging. And so that's what was important enough to get me to come forward and start talking, not just about my personal journey. I do that so that women understand I get it, mm-hmm. but, you know, to also bring forth this program that I've developed for women on these journeys. It's so important. And I think, yeah, I think a major frustration that, that, I found in like conventional psychotherapy or women who are coming to me talk about is the like the impersonal aspect of like wanting to break that wall of be like, but don't you get it? Or what do you think? Or like as a sister, can you just talk to me as a sister? Yes. And, you know, so I think that, yeah, I think 
I think my audience will, of course, appreciate you, what what you've just said on many levels, but. Yeah, yeah a lot of it. women that reach out to me say, you know, I, I just really want to talk to somebody who I know gets it. I really want to be with somebody who understands. And, and I do, I've just spent years of my life really trying to understand these experiences, you know, through a contextual behavioral lens to really help normalize and validate and take away this stigma. There's just so much judgment around breast implant surgery and even explant surgery. And is it okay if I swear? Is that okay with your listeners? Absolutely. I just call bullshit on that because, you know, you grow up in a society where there's so much messaging that this part of your body is so, so important and holds so much symbolic meaning. And then if you have a surgery to augment, restore, or reconstruct that part of your body, it's like you're supposed to hide it or let it be as natural as possible. Or there's just a lot of double standards in this area of women's health. And we are talking about many multiple millions of women. In 2021, globally, there was an estimated 1.7 million breast augmentation surgeries. So that's just one year. And, you know, that statistic has only changed half a percent since 2017. So these devices have been being put into women's bodies for decades and decades. Mm. And so we're talking about multiple, multiple millions of women. And then to just leave them to white knuckle through what happens when these devices aren't working out for you or you don't want them anymore. I just, it's just totally unhelpful and a ridiculous double standard. Can you speak to the history of, of this part of the cosmetic surgery industry? Like when did it become common for women, let's just say like in North America or in the U S to start doing this to their, to their bodies? Like, was it the 1940s? Was it the seventies? Like, can you take us through a bit of a history? Yeah. Of, uh, how that came to be? Yeah. You know, breast implants as we know them were introduced in the 1960s and they originally had, you know, the silicone breast implants that ultimately in the nineties, there was a moratorium placed on them and they were deemed to be, you know, unsafe and they were taken off the market. And so in addition to silicone breast implants, there's also saline filled breast implants. And so, you know, although the silicone was removed from the market, the saline was, was there and being used. And so, you know, I think in the nineties, you know, at least if you speak with someone who's in the Gen X age, they'll all kind of refer to Pamela Anderson, Mm -hmm. Baywatch. That was really when that body type was being, you know, regaled and, and pursued. It's much like what the current generation 
is seeing with the proportions with the Kardashians Mm -hmm. and the um, Brazilian butt lifts and the, you know, really tiny waists and, and everything else augmented to very unnatural proportions. So with straight up breast implants, you know, a lot of people look back and really say that it it was, you know, in the eighties when, and, and I should look at the statistics to be able to, you know, speak to that with confidence, but that it was in the eighties when it was really, really becoming popular. Breast augmentation is the darling of cosmetic surgery. It's, you know, for many, many years, it's in the number one spot as most common procedure. In the last couple of years, it's not in the number one spot. And there's some theories behind why that may be. One of them is, you know, in 2020, everybody started doing the Zoom interactions. And so everybody was starting to see their self, you know, basically chest up. Hmm. And there's more face surgeries, more facial cosmetic surgeries, and the breast implants kind of lost a little bit of ground. And uh, like I said, globally in 2021, it was the second, it ranked second after liposuction. So getting fat removed from your body. Um, And then in 2006, so there was the moratorium in the 90s. And then in 2000. Five two thousand six, silicone was reintroduced into the North American market. The FDA is the regulatory body whose job is to ensure that medical devices. Well, one of its job is to ensure that medical devices are safe and to inform you know providers and the public about any risks with them. And so, when they were reintroduced there was a lot of post-approval conditions that needed to be met in order for these devices to be, you know, being used. And unfortunately, a lot of those conditions weren't met. There wasn't appropriate follow-up studies done. I was in a clinical study and that helped me feel better about getting breast implants. It just, just getting them kind of was a values violation for me. So being in a clinical study helped me feel like I was in some way making that, you know, less of a stretch for myself. And I participated, I went to my appointments, I filled out the questionnaires, but it just suddenly and abruptly ended. And a lot of women that were in those clinical studies have the same story as me. It just suddenly ended. And, you know, those very short windows of data collection in no way represents what's happening to a woman when she keeps a device for 10 to 15 years. I was told you could keep them for life, which, you know, we know that's not true anymore, but a lot of women believe that and were told that their lifetime totally safe devices. Mm. Now, you know, the current history, the most recent history is that every year for the last several years, there have been important news releases and safety alerts coming out from the FDA about these devices. In 2019, we were alerted to breast implant associated lymphomas. In 2020, they started using language acknowledging breast implant illness and systemic health effects. In 2021, there was a boxed warning, which is their highest safety alert, which was placed on breast implants. 
2022, the FDA alerted people to another breast implant associated cancer called squamous cell carcinoma. Mm. So there's, in my opinion, both just looking at it from the outside, but then also from my own practice, I describe this as a tsunami in women's health because of those multiple, multiple millions of women that have breast implants in their bodies right now. And then these news releases coming out and these safety alerts coming out and women now understanding they can't keep them for life and that they aren't problem free. And some understand they weren't really appropriately studied, but not as many that's not being messaged, but the FDA has wonderful guidance documents too, like things to consider before getting breast implants. And it, I, if that document had existed in 2006, I would have never got them myself. Uh, but it outlines all of these things that I'm talking about and and highlighting. So, you know, they're not totally safe. They're not lifetime devices. And it's been this way for women for so long. And the, the other thing, you know, briefly that was going on in the 90s uh, that led to that moratorium was that women were getting very sick. They were reporting systemic illnesses. They were reporting breast implant illness back then. They could, they didn't call it that back then, but there's a Jenny Jones episode, an Oprah Winfrey episode. Uh, Connie Chung did an investigative report and women were coming forward and, you know, with pictures of themselves and shared experiences and talking about being made sick by their implants and, Again, there was the moratorium, but the in the 90s, I mean, there was no internet. You know, people were trying to connect with fax machines, you know? And so what happened is when they got reintroduced in the mid-2000s, about 10 years later, women started getting sick again. But this time there was the internet. And now women from around the world are able to connect with one another and learn from one another, you know, in ways that just can't be silenced as easily as it was in the nineties. Do you think even with this information that when women are making this decision, it's based on the real potential for these side effects, or do you think the cultural programming and the social programming is so strong that they're really after the feeling or the illusion of what they're going to get, you know, when, when they sign up for this, not, not to say that, you know, I mean, I, I feel weird about informed consent because the, you know, the, there is, there is so much else that, that we're going to get into that you cover in your work and in the book for why a woman would make this decision so, yeah, what do you what do you think at the end of the day, you know, why even if a woman knows that, you know, it could be harmful, it could, you know, result in another surgery or this is what they're being told and like believe this and that there is a possibility that this or that could happen. Is, th- is it that it's just so played down or is it also that 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 drive to get that feeling Mm-hmm. is so strong that it overrides. I mean, you're just risk. so wise to ask that it's, it is, I mean, that's really from my perspective, the question to be asking, right. And there has been one study recently that was published that looked at a change of mind after 
a more appropriate, a more informed consent than what women have traditionally received. And there was a change of mind reported among some, but not all women considering breast implant surgery. And so, you know, what, what we know is if you're looking at before and after pictures and you see before pictures that you identify with, that looks like you, either you have asymmetrical breasts, you have tuberous breasts, you have women refer to post-nursing breasts as fried egg breasts, whatever that is. If you see before pictures that look like you, your mind puts your own appearance into a network of beliefs that basically equals bad, needing to be fixed, not good enough, not safe. And so when you see these after pictures where implants have been installed, then the implants are associated with relief, deliverance, measuring up, being good enough, and being fixed. And they become something that from a behavior perspective is called appetitive. You want to pursue it. You want it. And so by the time you get to the doctor's office and they're going over, you've got a chance of this happening, whatever it is, they can say, let's say, for example, you have a 50% chance of this negative experience the woman who's holding an appetitive frame around these devices is going to hear she's got a 50% chance that that's not going to happen to her. Right. Right. So she might want to just roll those dice and it's going to depend on the person, her values, her personal history, her family history, you know, how different things land with her and how much it's going to shape her behavior and determine ultimately if she moves forward with the surgery or not. Uh, You know, advocates in this space, of course, we want women to be fully informed. And if they move forward with the surgery, you know, at least they will know to watch out and be alert for these things, as opposed to decades and decades and decades of women who were told that these are one and done get it and forget it surgeries. Mm. That That's bullshit. That's how you set a woman up to be unhealthy. That's how you set her up to struggle and suffer and not know to consider maybe this is related to my body having an immune system whose entire job is designed to keep me safe from foreign invaders and foreign objects, you know, If you were told it's one and done, get it and forget it, then you never stop to think about what's going on holistically in your body. So hopefully women who are getting them now are getting a more complete picture and will know to consider that Mm -hmm. when and if uh, problems develop later on down the line. Mm -hmm. So speaking to like the what they think they're getting or the closer to the self they were, uh, you know, how would you 
could you talk a little bit about the this you know you you use the phrase socially inherited thinking um can you speak to like the cultural meaning of of breasts and and what uh from your experience and your work with women what getting those implants means to them mm -hmm. or what it meant to you or what you thought it was going to do for you and then yeah for sure i mean you know this is my favorite thing to talk about uh because I will talk about it in terms of what I call the breast rule book, but all of our minds hold many of these socially inherited rule books. And so understanding how this one was formed and how you can liberate yourself from it can help you with all of this other stuff that we struggle with as well. So if you're, if you grow up in a society where breasts are sexualized, where they're objectified, what happens is two things. First, all little kid minds notice, irrespective of if you're in a, a society like ours where they're objectified, just all little kid minds notice, hey, ladies have breasts, women have breasts. So little kids just notice that. And then our minds love to see relationships between two things. Our minds like to see those relationships in both directions. So just out of a hobby, a little kid mind, once it learns, you know, women have breasts, the little kid mind just on its own derives breasts are womanly. So, okay. Then if you're in a society like ours, where they're sexualized, they're objectified, they're idealized, there's a certain way for them to look. The mind continues doing that with arbitrary things that hold great meaning for us, like bigger breasts are better. And then it will derive smaller breasts are worse. Or it will, I, it will learn that there's an ideal way for breasts to appear. And then it will learn there's a bad way for them to appear. Or many bad ways. If there's this one idealized image, and by the way, a lot, most of us when we say the word breast, all of us kind of have the same image that comes to our mind. That's the social program that I'm talking about. And it's basically, they've looked at this and it's basically a fullness from the nipple underneath. And the nipple is a, a, it's symmetrically placed, pardon me. So it's centered, it's of a certain size, a certain intensity of color relative to the rest of the color, right? There's this ideal image. And so our mind learns that if yours varies by too much, then yours aren't good enough. They don't measure up, you know? And also, unfortunately, there's all of this messaging, social messaging about body proportions, balance, how confident you will feel in a swimsuit lingerie during intimacy or walking into a work meeting, right? It's like, you know, all of this symbolic meaning is put on this body part and how it balances out the rest of your body. So I was actually really surprised when I started interviewing women, I did a what's your why series and I was interviewing them on, you know, why did your mind think you needed breast implants? And it was very, very interesting how many women told me I was not proportioned appropriately. Mm. I just wasn't, I would try on a dress 
And it's like I needed two different sizes, a size to fit my waist down and a size to fit waist up. And rather than think that maybe the dress had been made unrealistically, I thought I was the problem. And that that was shared a lot with me. So that's the social programming is, you know, it's just an exquisitely bad combination between how the human mind works and learns and creates big, vast networks of beliefs and all of this messaging around breasts. And, you know, I think there's a lot of really deep historic stuff here with, with this, you know, like it or not, eons ago, I mean, and not even that long ago, but you can just take, you know, 16th century England, right? And, you know, part of that whole jockeying for families was this viewing daughters as ways to better the marriage, you know, better the family, better the family standing through marriage, right? And you wanted your daughter to appear fertile, You wanted your daughter to have, you know, that's what all those corsets were about and all that stuff pushing up the breasts, you know, that was associated with fertility and getting that all desired male air, you know, so this stuff, it it is socially inherited. Breasts have held a lot of important and symbolic meaning for really a very, very long time. And so this happens to us without our awareness. We don't give permission to it. We just all learn that this part of the body holds some meaning. And then, you know, it depends on what else is going on in your life as to how intensely you grip this mental rule book. If you are really involved in a sport where you want and benefit from a very slim, sleek profile, then you're not really gripping to that rule book in the same way, right? So context really, really matters. Mm -hmm. And that's why not everybody just, you know, files down this line towards these surgeries. And also there's a lot of women who can spend decades of their life not really thinking much about these rules, these social rules about their breasts, because their breasts are within some kind of, you know, margin of this, this rule book. But if she gains weight, loses weight, has age-related changes, pregnancy-related changes, nursing-related changes, if she gets breast cancer, right? When one of those changes comes along and then pulls her too far from being in alignment with that rule book, then that part of her mind that cares about her social belonging and and all of that kicks in just like mine and starts saying, Hey, you know, maybe you should do something about that. This doesn't feel as safe as all these other decades that you've lived and looked this other way. And there's, there's plenty of people that are willing to put those devices into women. So it's a pretty normalized thing in our, in our society. It's interesting. Yeah. Hearing you speak about the, um, yeah, the rule book, as you were sharing kind of the socially informed, the the messaging that we are getting, 
I was thinking about the messaging that we aren't getting, like that our breasts are cyclical, like that our breasts have a cycles along with our uterus, you know, our, our, our roughly monthly experience as women that we we go through. And then the, the other thing that I thought about was like the erotic pleasure that we can get from our own breasts like for ourselves like as a as a kind of a mutually um health like mutually experienced uh thing not you know men objectifying our breasts for their erotic pleasure um but a participatory you know uh experience so there's all of the all the messaging of what our breasts are used for and then a kind of a a secrecy around what what they are actually doing, what they're actually capable of. And then by extension, you know, just being able to nourish our, mm-hmm. our children and the, the marketing around formula and how, you know, I've spoken to some women who have decided, yeah, who have gotten prophylactic double mastectomies, who are still unsure if they want kids, um, but have now eliminated the ability to to provide that for their kids. And I don't think that that would be possible without the narrative that, you know, breast milk actually isn't that necessary for your kids. You know, there's another yeah. way. And, and yes, uh, technically, yeah, you, humans can, you know, be sustained on formula, but it's not optimal. It's not yeah. optimal. And, you know, it, it, and so, yeah, I think... So that's what came up as you were sharing about the, yeah, that rule book or that margin of, of, of normal and how, yeah, I appreciate you saying that like really none of us are immune because we don't know what's going, you know, we never know like the way that we're going to be preyed upon and when that will happen, which is why you sharing this information is so, so important. Yeah. Um, and it's really, you know, to drive the point home, there are cultures right now, there are societies right now on the planet where they they don't fondle breasts during sex. They aren't sexualized. Mm. They would never think of, you know, oral play with breasts because they're viewed as food for infants, Mm. you know? And so those, in those cultures, the minds aren't moving in a way where after nursing, the woman is left feeling less than. It's just, it doesn't happen. They, you know what I mean? Because they don't have the same kind of learned symbolic meaning with breasts. My post-nursing breasts in another culture, I could have been very proud of them because they did their job amazingly, you know? And yet to your point, because that stuff isn't front and center is not something that can be, you know, have predatory practices around because nursing doesn't have a multi-billion dollar industry like baby formula, you know, instead of me feeling proud, I felt shame, Mm. you know? Well, you, you touched on it. So you touched on this just a minute ago, but the I think it's important that we yeah we talk about the the reality of who the sex of the people doing the surgery to the sex of the person receiving you know that there's this and I've heard this I've heard so many stories of this with the gender identity quote medicine industry where 
you have these young women, adolescent or early 20s going in, and they're confronted by primarily male surgeons who are cosmetic surgeons who are telling them, you know, that nothing is a problem. Like you want to have a fake penis? We'll, we'll make it happen. You, you, you regret getting your breast cut off. We can always put new ones back on. Um, mm. They'll look just as real as, mm. as the old ones, you know, but not mentioning that they will be completely actually not functional and yeah. let alone all of the, you know, health, health risks involved that you've, you've outlined. So, yeah, we, we talk a little bit about the, the male female dynamic when it comes to the actual, um, the ins and outs of being in that, that medical industry, being a consumer of that, that product. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's very interesting. I don't know exactly what the statistics are in terms of gender distribution among plastic surgeons, cosmetic surgeons. But I do know that, like you said, it's very male dominated. And it's just, it's a very interesting thing. These going in for these consultations, having, you know, that surgeon's mind holds the same breast rule book as yours and mine, and anybody else. And so, you know, there's this person who's got this breast rule book who doesn't have the personal lived experience of having breasts, of having them be a, a part of your sense of identity or your sense of worth or sense of safety or having them be a source of ridicule, right? So this person doesn't have that lived experience. There are female plastic surgeons, but by and large, when it's a male, they don't know what it is that you've experienced or that you're wanting delivery from or what you're hoping for. They can speak to it because it's been written about so much, you know, but they don't know about nursing. I mean, I personally felt that, you know, when I was able to nurse that, and I couldn't with my first child, I was able to with our last child. And that experience when I was nursing, I felt like I was connected with a sense of something really big, this sense of motherhood that wasn't even just limited to humans. You know, I was thinking about all mammals around the globe and it just, you know, the releasing of the oxytocin, that bonding hormone, that peace, love, safety chemical, it's just a tremendous experience when you are talking about altering your breasts with a male surgeon, they have no idea of that experience or what you may be giving up. You know, so you can nurse with implants if that's a personal decision that you're comfortable with. And some women want to nurse with implants and they're unable to, because there has been surgically induced damage and they're not able to, to nurse. So there's a lot of these experiences. And then there's, this other part that Isabel, I really, it, it, it's this um, almost like if a woman has had systemic illness from her breast implants and she has been suffering and she is going to get them removed. And, and sometimes BII, that's the acronym for breast implant illness. It, it can be, I mean, harrowing, it can be deadly. Right. And then there's this revering of these surgeons 
for having, quote, saved their life, you know, and that's a very interesting dynamic to me. You know, I, I know I've heard of women naming their children, their their child, their next child after their surgeon, you know, like really a lot of extreme, deep gratitude towards this person who is in a for-profit business and is charging, you know, sometimes five figures for these surgeries. You know, it isn't like out of the goodness of their heart, you know, it's just a very interesting dynamic that can that can happen in this whole thing with the male female experience that I just watch and and I just want to say to the women you know because I think it's another rule book mm-hmm. you know we've got the breast rule book but we've also got this other kind of I don't know maybe you can put a word to it but it's this she's not seeing that she's saving her own life she's the one who recognized right this systemic issue despite potentially being gaslit despite controversial and conflicting information about it she's the one who took the chance she's the one who researched surgeries and surgeons and selected one she's the one who's paying for it she's saving her life right and i see that as kind of another one of these rule books it's disempowering in some way to women to to do this kind of I don't know what what word it is, but it's maybe being grateful for crumbs, just like the bare minimum, seeing their decision to use the technology that they have available to them as like uh, a moral uh, like a su- in being moral support of like your process when in fact they if you ask them to do the opposite they would do that again too well yeah. it's interesting and that that is an important distinction is that there's a special kind of surgeon called an explant only surgeon and those are the ones that women can feel very passionate about because they will no longer place breast implants they will only remove them um, and they get really attached to that because there is the potential to be gaslit and for people to not believe you that your breast implants are making you ill. And in this area of women's health, some women take a lot of, you know, meaning from that. It's very valuable to them to have a surgeon that won't put these harmful devices into anyone. And so that can, that can really amplify that intense appreciation for the surgeon making that decision. When in fact, really, that's part of the oath that a doctor takes, right? Like once a doctor has seen patients who present with systemic health effects, and then remove breast implants and recover, then that's them keeping their oath by saying, I won't put these devices in the body anymore. You know, I mean, that's great. I'm glad that they're making that decision. And it's still, you know, to this thing that we're having a hard time putting our finger on, I think it speaks to that of, it's just, I want women to feel a lot more, they're they're moving themselves through these journeys. You know, they're the ones that are reclaiming their life, reclaiming their health, reclaiming their well-being. They're paying someone to do a surgery for them. Like, it's like joining another church, like deferring authority again, like 
rather than cultivating that inner authority and that sovereignty, it's just another deference and it's yeah. Um, yeah, someone outside themselves or a, a, a person, yeah, a person outside themselves. It's like changing, yeah, changing yeah. religions in some way. But so, yeah, that that's really, really helpful to hear. And, and yeah, I can, I've, I have engaged in some conversations uh, when I've talked about breast implant illness or just broaching the topic. Um, and I, just as someone who hasn't had, you know, breast implants or, you know, obviously breast implant illness, hearing people say, well, how do you know it's that? How do you know? You know, which is a valid question, but I imagine incredibly <laughs> infuriating when you're uh, literally have a leaky device, you know, <laughs> in you. Yeah. I mean, foreign. yeah. Breast implant illness does not have a biomarker. You can't just go to the doctor and get your blood drawn or get something measured and then leave there with a diagnosis, a definitive diagnosis. And so, you know, when you take into consideration that, you know, breasts hold so much symbolic meaning, they matter to us so much that we will opt to surgically augment, restore, or reconstruct them. When it comes time to consider removing them for a health-related reason, it makes sense that a lot of women are going to want something more definitive. You know, the list of breast implant illness symptoms includes a lot of non-specific things that, you know, can come on mildly over the years and easily be misattributed to other things. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, part of a chronic inflammatory response that a human body can have. And it can just look like other things. So it's a very, you know, difficult thing for women on these journeys. This part of their body matters to them. They had a surgery. They've got this device that they may or may not have been told everything to consider about it. And then, you know, they may be wondering if part of why they're feeling bad is their body's just kind of losing that battle from the 24-7 exposure to these foreign objects and they want a definitive answer. If that's one of the top three things I companion women through in my practice is the what ifs, if they're considering a BII related explant. Mm -hmm. And that's not the only reason that women explant, but BII related explant is very, very common. And if that is why they're moving toward that surgery, the what ifs, can be pretty powerful. What if I don't feel better? What if this isn't why I experience this? You know, what if I do this and I don't feel like it was worth it? Can you speak to the, um, the breast cancer double mastectomy recipient or someone who has, you know, undergone a double mastectomy for breast cancer related issues uh and the as you you mentioned in a previous conversation uh the conveyor belt into uh breast implants yeah absolutely you know so right now in our country at least there are four solid pathways for a breast cancer post mastectomy patient and one of those pathways is reconstruction with breast implants 
Another one is reconstruction with her own body tissue. Another one is aesthetic flat closure. And then another one is similar to that. It's called a Goldilocks. Um, so it's not a totally flat um, chest. So now in our country, if a woman has breast cancer, she's post mastectomy or moving through and preparing for uh, mastectomy. Most of those patients report that it is a very rushed time and where it is presented to her that of course she's going to reconstruct with breast implants, that of course she's going to reconstruct breast mounds, you know, and any woman who for any reason may not be totally on board with that, if she is considering aesthetic flat closure, where she just doesn't want to put devices in her body that mean more surgeries. She doesn't want to put something in her body that comes with man-made cancers like breast implant associated squamous cell carcinoma, right? So if she just wants to go, you know, mastectomy and be done, they have patronizing things said to them like, well, of course you have to have breasts, you won't feel whole or complete. You're not thinking straight. You know, some women have had to undergo mental examinations to prove that they were thinking straight. And that's just how deeply ingrained this concept that I talk about, the mental breast rule book, it is so deeply ingrained that it kind of creates that conveyor belt that breast cancer patients describe when they've had mastectomy, that they're just going towards implant-based reconstruction, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's, again, it just reflects this and, you know, to a point that you made earlier, you know, when, when I have women post mastectomy women on my caseload who are ultimately now explanting to flat. So they did the implant-based reconstruction and it's not working out and they're getting those removed and they're going to explant to a flat chest. You know, they will look back and lament and say, I didn't feel like I had any options and, and no one told me that there was another way for me. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that they'll say is I, these aren't my breasts. They didn't reconstruct my breasts. They, they reconstructed mounds but I already lost my breasts, mm. you know? And so, and for some women, it's really important. The breast implant reconstruction is a very important stepping stone for them. And it does help them kind of step through that grief and loss of that body part. Mm -hmm. And for others, when they're explanting to flat, they're just really grieving that there's more surgeries that, you know, the way that it's all worked out. So, you know, if nothing else, what I've learned specializing in this area of women's health is that all of these journeys are highly nuanced, highly nuanced, and that there's just really no room for us to be kind of judging one another or wagging our fingers at one another. You know, I think our, our place is to recognize that really, I know this sounds cliche, but we are all in this together. You know, if you grow up in a society like ours, we all have the same 
kind of stuff that goes through our minds. And then it's luck of the draw in terms of how much that's pushed you around on the inside and what external experiences you've had that Mm -hmm. kind of come together in a way that determines whether or not your life journey includes these devices. To, to expand on that, that there are so many, you're speaking to like the, the pr- various profiles, like we're, there, there are some commonalities, obviously, you know, that is informing these decisions and the various profiles of each woman who is coming to this will vary and is nuanced. And the one, the one, uh, like profile that came to mind was the woman who hasn't had breast cancer, but who, you know, but is doing what's called the the prophylactic uh, double mastectomy, which like I take issue with. I don't know if we have enough time in this episode to go down that um, rabbit hole. Like what, you know, uh, I, I just, I, I just can't wrap my head around the, the taking off the non-cancerous, potentially cancerous tissue to then put in a known verifiable dangerous device and this yeah so that that was like the first thing that struck me when I started reading about and hearing stories of women who are getting uh who are like in their late 20s early 30s getting these prophylactic double mastectomies and you know like women like Angelina Jolie you know normalizing this and setting like the trend for like this is something you can do this is something that is available to you and but the thought I had more specifically was how a woman who's having a pro doing a pro a quote prophylactic double mastectomy would feel about looking like she's a breast cancer survivor when she's not. Yeah. They're so they're called previvors and they do feel at least the ones that I've spoken with that, you know, it's harder for them to find a place of belonging in all of this for exactly what you just said, they're previvors. And so they didn't have uh, breast cancer treatment, the, you know, chemicals, the radiation, all of that. And so they don't, you know, they just feel differently. And, you know, there is a different, it lands differently. Like you're pointing out, if you've done something prophylactically and then the thing that was normalized, the device that was used to do the reconstruction, if you learn later that that device is associated with a man-made cancer, there's some unusual and intense emotions with that. You know, I prophylactically removed this part of my body to really minimize possibly getting breast cancer and I was told I have a totally safe device but what you're telling me is that this device is actually associated with a risk of other cancers right that is some righteous indignation that can show up you know and it, it lands differently if you did it prophylactically versus you know, as part of a treatment, Mm -hmm. it just lands differently for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this, this comes up this level of like regret or feeling of having been betrayed 
by doctors or family members, anyone who was for or in support of, whether we're talking about, you know, the gender identity, quote medicine, the injectable prophylactic, hormonal birth control. You know, I, I, I a lot of women come to me who feel a lot of um, sadness, rage, regret, feelings of betrayal. What is your advice to women or, you know, do you cover this in, in your book and how can women move through this coming to this information, as you said, which can be so confronting and, and like uh, just upsetting yeah. to, to realize. So in busting free. So that's the, the self-help book that I wrote for women on explant journeys and you know, it's designed for someone to be able to turn to it no matter where they are in their journey. If they're just at this place, you know, where you're talking about of kind of discovering, you know, wait, what, you know, I can't keep these for life or wait, they might actually put me at risk of cancer. You know, so that book is there at that part of the journey, or let's say you're much further along and you just don't want them in your body anymore, or, or let's say you've already removed them. That book helps women move through that. And the, one of the big main tenets of that is being able to companion yourself through those difficult thoughts and feelings, as opposed to what I see women do so much, which is one of the, I said, there's three main things that I deal with, um, in this specialty practice, but another one is the self blame, you know, and the regret and anger and all of these strong emotions, but, you know, being able to companion yourself through that and learn how to offer yourself genuine abiding compassion, you know, and to be able to turn self-acceptance from a concept into a practice and the reason that this is all so important, you know, the explant journey gives you this huge opportunity to learn all of these new long overdue skills. And it's so important because we repeat what we don't repair, right? So if you're, if you got on the implant table because of these behind the scenes processes going on in your mind relative to your social messaging, I mean, just think about how many things are messaged to women about how we ought to be, how we should behave, how we shouldn't behave, how we should age or not age, what we should do, how thick our eyebrows should be, our lips better be full and balanced. I mean, there's so, there's no shortage of that. And so we will just continue moving forward, feeling threatened and having that kind of predatory stuff you know, leading us to feel not good enough, less than, and that we've got to fix the way we feel on the inside by fixing how we look on the outside. So, you know, for women who are on these journeys and they want to emerge with a different way to be, a different way to navigate a society that, you know, there is some very strong things that push us down paths that aren't the right choice for us. They, they are pushing us down paths that can lead us to becoming dependent upon other things or other devices or needing more surgeries. Breast implants are just one example, right? So this journey is an opportunity for you. It's why I called the book busting free 
it's like a triple entendre, but, but one of the ways you're busting free is you're busting free of having this very normal part of being a human caring about belonging to your group. That's normal, healthy behavior. That's why we survive as a species, right? But when that has a predatory spin so that industries can make a bunch of money off of you, this is your opportunity to learn a new way to be, right? And I've had women who for one reason or another read Busting Free, even though they aren't on these journeys, they were reading it for one reason or another. And they said that it was helping them really feel like they were learning the inner skills to be able to, you know, you can't go into any store without seeing an image being projected at you that is designed to make you feel less than, you know, or that you need to do something or buy something or invest in something to measure up well and to safely belong. And so that's what, you know, the book's called Busting Free, but, you know, for me, it's much more of a movement of trying to help women to bust free from all of this. And like I said, we repeat what we don't repair. So learning a new way to be with that very natural part of your mind that cares about how well you measure up, just because it's sounding an alarm doesn't mean you have to act on it, right? If I had known in 2006, when that part of my mind was like, hey, your breasts look like ski slopes, you've got to fix them. Like if I'd known how to take care of that part of me, if I'd known how to respond to it differently, I would have had a totally different life. I'd be tens of thousands of dollars richer. I wouldn't have had those surgeries and my body wouldn't be dealing with systemic health effects, you know, and that's the gift that I want to give women who are struggling on these journeys. I'm not here to tell you how to feel on your journey. I'm not here pushing any particular agenda on you. But if you are feeling regret, hurt, anger, betrayal, if you are feeling like you know self-acceptance is hard for you and has been hard for you, if you want to learn a new way to be, or if you want to liberate yourself from this predatory practice about our human nature, then that book literally walks you through it. It's a walk the walk book. I'm so glad that is available to women and that you've provided, yeah, a real, you know, it's a really interactive book for those, you know, wondering if there are worksheets, there are uh, guides to, yeah, really help you move through everything that, that Amanda has brought up in, you know, in this conversation. And um, I love that it, there's something for everyone on their journey. And I think also a great resource for any woman supporting another woman through like embodiment, you know, issues and that, you know, cultivating that inner authority and yeah, getting, getting to the root of the thing, because if it's not breast implants, it's going to be something else, you know, it's, yeah. it's just, that's the particular flavor that some women have um, chosen of seeking that yeah. likeness or that, that tribal normal, natural urge to just want to look like the other members of your group, you know, I think you want to belong important. Yeah. The belonging you just safely want to belong, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. we're designed to care about that. Yeah. Um, eons ago, it meant that we got to stay alive because <laughs> if you got kicked out of your group, you were going to be eaten or frozen, Yeah, you know? 
I think, you know, in the context when I've, I've talked about the the double mastectomies and the, it, with the, the formerly trans identified women, I always think of um, like the, the, the death of the mother, like the severing of the mother, the mother connection, that mammalian mammary yeah. part of us, you know, that severing of the mother. Yeah, it, you could kind of zoom out and just see how that's true and in all realms, yeah. like we are disconnected from. Like I always say, listen, this is really about, it's not about vanity. It's about humanity, you know, and recognizing that this is a really big part, like it or not, agree with it or not, this part of the human body holds a lot of meaning around, you know, femininity and womanhood. And it's, it's, I think why there's all of these, all of this energy and tension in the things that you talk about a lot, you know? Well, thank you so much, Amanda, for yeah, highlighting this this really important issue for, for all of my audience. Um, I, I just really appreciate your time and your work and we'll link your book and your website in the episode show notes for women who, yeah, want to learn more and, and, and yeah, their healing, their healing journey, wherever they are. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Like I said, I get this, these journeys and I get this meaning I get the grief that someone can feel, you know, whether it's breast implants didn't work out for them. Breast reconstruction after mastectomy is not working out or needs to be reversed or that pain of having had that double mastectomy um, and then regretting it, you know, and, and not you know, not understanding how you can move forward without that that part of your body. So, you know, I'm here for questions and support and help with any of those experiences. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or family member who needs to hear this content. And if you do share it on social media, don't forget to follow and tag me at whose body is it. So until next time, 